Turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And this morning we're going to take as our text, with the Lord's help, the first 16 verses of Acts chapter 20. And I'd like to speak to you for just the next few moments about a model of ministry. Now before we read the text, I want to point out to you that in these 16 verses, this encompasses about a year of Paul's ministry. And uh, it doesn't seem that way because of the way that it's written. It seems as if things are happening rapidly and one thing right after the other. But by studying some of the epistles which Paul wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we find some further details about this season of ministry and it encompasses about a year of his life. And as we read these 16 verses, we find something about the type of ministry that Paul had. And particularly in the book of 2 Corinthians, we're reminded that this particular season of ministry was a very difficult season for the apostle. For instance, in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, he used this to, de- to describe the kind of ministry that he was involved in at this time and just before while he was in Asia. He described himself as being pressed out of measure, above strength, in so much that we despaired even of life. And the book of 2 Corinthians, perhaps one of the most biographical of Paul's epistles, shares with us something of what Paul was facing during this season of ministry. At some point, you might read through the book of 2 Corinthians with these 16 verses as a backdrop and think about what Paul was encountering. But this morning, in the midst of all of that difficulty, and of course much of that difficulty, that pressing that he was experiencing, was coming because of persecution that was being enacted against him in the work of the ministry. But in spite of the hardship and in spite of the difficulty, Paul continued on in the work. And in doing so, he really gives us a good model of ministry. And so look in verse number one with me, Acts chapter 20, verse one. The scripture says, after the uproar was ceased, Paul called unto him the disciples and embraced them and departed for to go into Macedonia. And when he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece and there abode three months. And when the Jews laid wait for him as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. And there accompanied him into Asia, Sopater of Berea, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timotheus, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. These going before tarried for us at Troas. And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. 
And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till break of of day, so he departed. And they brought the young man alive and were not a little comforted. And we went before to ship and sailed unto Asos, there intending to take in Paul, for so had he appointed, minding himself to go afoot. And when he met with us at Asos, we took him in and came to Mytilene. And we sailed thence and came the next day over against Chios, and the next day we arrived at Samos and tarried at Trogilium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So we notice a lot of movement of the Apostle Paul. As we've mentioned, this is about a year of ministry that is encompassed with these 16 verses, and a significant thing that is taking place during this season of ministry, which we read about in the book of 2 Corinthians, is that the apostle was collecting a special offering from the brethren, both in Asia and also in Europe, the region of Macedonia and down into Greece. He's collecting a special offering, which is intended for the relief of the saints in Jerusalem. And the folks in Jerusalem were undergoing a terrible persecution. There was also a terrible famine that was taking place in Judea, which was affecting them. And the brethren were giving towards that need. Paul and his co-laborers were collecting that offering, and they intended to bring that to the city of Jerusalem for the relief of the church there and to help with their physical needs. But as we observe the ministry of the apostle here in Acts chapter 20, we notice several thoughts about ministry, which I believe are pertinent to us today as we are engaged in the ministry. And before we talk about these thoughts, I want to point out to you that it is God's intention, God's will for every believer, for every member of a New Testament church to be involved in the work of the ministry. So we're not just talking about those who who we we regard as being called into full-time service, pastors and evangelists, but we're talking about the intention of God for every believer and ministry In other words, serving others with the truth of God or with the gospel of Christ is so very important that it is actually the central core of our mission. This is what we are to be doing. This is the primary means by which we glorify God as a church. So it's imperative that we would understand the the proper model of ministry. Notice with me several thoughts here in Acts chapter 20. First of all, We find that ministry, being involved in ministry, gives us chances for precious fellowship. And we see in these first opening verses of chapter 20, as Paul was preparing to leave to go into Macedonia, he's leaving from the city of Ephesus and heading over across the the sea to the other side, to the region of Macedonia. And in his preparations to go, he called the disciples to himself and he embraced them, and he departed to go. Later on, we see that he enjoyed precious fellowship with the believers at the church that was in the city of Troas. And we find all through this passage that Paul had come to a place in his Christian walk 
where he deeply treasured the relationships that were built around the gospel. And I want to point out to you that you and I should be very careful to treasure the relationships that God gives us because of Christ. There's a kinship that we share as members of this church, and that kinship is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been adopted into the same family, the family of God, and it's important for us to take opportunities to fellowship together. Now, fellowship is not just sitting and talking about the weather or what we've been eating or, uh, you know, these sorts of things, but actually fellowship tends to take place. The, The most precious times of fellowship tend to take place as we are ministering together, as we are serving the Lord. And, and if you look in your own Christian life, I think you would agree that, that you would see this taking place, that it's when we're shoulder to shoulder, working together in the calling of God, it's in those times that we find we have the deepest, the most fulfilling, the most meaningful type of fellowship. A lot of people today in our, in our generation and in, in our country in particular have this idea, well, we need a fellowship. And what they mean by that is we need to have fun together. And there's a place for having fun together. There's nothing wrong with having enjoyable times where we enjoy a meal together. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about, in, in this passage, it talks about breaking bread together, enjoying meals together. Jesus often did this with his disciples. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the deepest kind of fellowship that we will enjoy is usually encountered when we are facing the obstacles of the ministry. When we're working through difficulties together, you see in verse number one that Paul had become so close and so intimate with these disciples in Ephesus that it was very important for him to call these brothers to himself so that he could say goodbye, so that he could... Uh, tell them that he, he wasn't sure if he was going to see them again. He wasn't sure if this was his last opportunity. So he wanted to make sure that he had a chance to speak to them, to look them in the eyes and tell them that he cared about them just in case he didn't come back this way again. And, you know, I was thinking about this. And sometimes we take our relationships with others in the Lord's church for granted. We assume that others will always be there. We assume that they'll be there next service, that we'll have another chance to see them, that they're going to continue uh, being a member of the same church as we are, that nothing is going to change. And it's, it's not really a good thing that we don't treasure these relationships like we ought to. I know it's important in our home that when you're getting ready to go somewhere, you go and you say goodbye. And there's reasons for that. Uh, for myself, sometimes I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm leaving and I'm going somewhere, what if I don't come back? What if something happens while I'm gone and I don't ever come back? I want my family to know that I love them. I, I want them to know that, that they were on my mind and on my heart. I, I want the last thing that they remember about me to be words of love and, and care and concern for them and, and tenderness. And, and, you know, we ought to think the same way about the Lord's church we got to think the same way about the relationships that we have with one another. But it truly is in working together that God draws us together in precious fellowship with one another. So ministry gives us chances for precious fellowship. If I could say it this way, you say, I'm longing for some fellowship. Well, then maybe you should look into some ministry. 
And maybe as you're involved in ministry, working together with others, you would find that God would bond your heart together with them. Ministry gives us chances for fellowship. But we see also in this passage, second of all, that ministry involves a pattern of exhortation. So we see what Paul is doing. He departs from Ephesus, and in verse 2 it says, When he had gone over those parts and had given them much exhortation, he came into Greece. So this is, a, this is an extended period of time that verse 2 is representing. And all over the region of Macedonia, of course, Paul had seen a number of churches planted in this region of the world as he had preached the gospel, people were saved, disciples were baptized, churches were formed, pastors were left behind to oversee those congregations. But Paul was now traveling to these many places where churches had been established, and his singular goal was he wanted to exhort. And this idea of exhortation or exhorting means that he was strengthening them in their calling. So these were real believers. These were people who had endured some persecution. They had gone through some difficulties. Paul was sharing in that difficulty with them, but he's coming alongside And the idea of exhorting means, come along with me and let's do this together. Let's serve the Lord together. Exhortation, I've I've told you this before, but exhortation doesn't mean pointing and telling somebody, go do that. Exhortation means, let's go do this together. And this is what Paul is modeling. He's modeling the power of exhortation. When we come alongside others and we say, let's serve the Lord together. Hey, let me encourage you. Uh, Let's do God's will, God's way, and let's do it together. This is exactly what Paul was involved in. (coughs) Now, the reason he was doing this is because Paul had a spiritual gift, and he had a calling to fulfill. And his gifting and his calling involved exhortation of the believers. He was strengthening them so that when he was gone and would not return, the work would continue on in his absence. Ministry involves a pattern of exhortation. And we ought to be looking for opportunities to exhort others. To, uh, this, this means that we first, ourselves, have to be involved in this work. It's not something that we're just telling others, you go get involved in this or that thing. But rather it is, hey, I'm experiencing God's blessing in the work, and I want to invite you to come And be a part of that. I want you to come and see how God could work through you. Exhortation. It says to someone else, I've been living the Christian life. I've been walking in the will of God. I've been learning what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And I want you to experience the same thing. Come along with me and let's serve the Lord together. Ministry involves a pattern of exhortation. And what that means is there is an intention of those who are receiving the exhortation being involved in the work of ministry. And this will lead us to the next thought. But we've developed somewhat of a model of ministry in our country, which is more of a spectator model, where someone gets up and addresses the crowd, and people come to watch that person address the congregation, and then when it's all over, we go back and we live our normal lives, and we do the things that are our priorities. But the intention, Ephesians 4 tells us, is that when we come into the assembly, that the believers would be equipped 
so that they might go and do the work of the ministry. The intention is that you would be challenged, that you would be exhorted, and that then you would be involved in the work of the ministry. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's something that God intends for every person to be involved. So ministry involves a pattern of exhortation. But notice number three, ministry requires partnership. And you'll notice then in verse number four, there's a list of individuals that were accompanying Paul, that were a part of his ministry team. They're named for us here. Some of these men we really don't know anything about other than maybe where they are from. For instance, the first man that's mentioned there, uh, Sopater, he's from the church at Berea. Now, we know something about the church at Berea. We would assume that this man had that same character, but this is his only mention in the New Testament. We don't know anything more about him except that he was accompanying together with the Apostle Paul. Several others are mentioned, like Aristarchus. We know a little bit more about him. Uh, he and Secundus are from the church in Thessalonica. There's a man named Gaius. This is probably not the same Gaius that was in the church at Corinth, one of the first men to be saved and baptized there in that congregation. It's probably a different Gaius because of where it says that he is from. There's several men by this name in the New Testament. Of course, Timotheus, we recognize that name. He's uh, pretty well known in the New Testament, and we respect this young man as a laborer together with Paul. By this time, Timotheus has been a part of the team, the ministry team that Paul is leading for some time, and has become quite experienced in the work of the ministry. Not long after this, Timotheus will be left at Ephesus to continue the work in the city of Ephesus with the church that is there and many people believe that Timotheus became the pastor of that church for a period of time and labored nobly for the Lord there. Uh, others like Tychicus and Trophimus are mentioned. And of course, he's not mentioned by name, but it's implied in chapter 20 that Luke was also together with this missions team, that he was traveling together. So we have a group of men. And, and we know that Paul's pattern was that he would come into a place and he might spend a little time there. Maybe he would move on to another place and leave someone behind and then they would rejoin. And so there was probably a lot of this back and forth and people going different places, but they were working together in the work of the ministry. And this leads us to this thought that ministry requires partnership. Paul always had believed in this principle of partnership but it is clear that at this point in his ministry, Paul was placing a special emphasis on the partnership or the mentorship of men for the continuance of the ministry. There's several reasons for this, one of which may be that Paul was really sensing that the persecution was getting strong. He had to be wondering, okay, how much longer is it going to be before I am taken before I am jailed, before perhaps I lose my life. By this time, there have been a number of attempts on his life. And so Paul has made a decided emphasis on investing in the lives of those who are coming along with him with the intention that they will continue on that work after he is gone. And it's good for you and I to be reminded this morning that there's no superstars in the work of God. Sometimes we think about Paul and if there's anyone in the Bible that we think of, especially the New Testament, that we think of as a superstar, it's the Apostle Paul. We think, whoa, the Apostle Paul, wow, that guy is something else. Boy, we need an Apostle Paul. Well, the truth is the strength of Paul's ministry, and certainly he was notable, and God puts a spotlight on him. 
But the strength of Paul's ministry was that he invested in many, many men who labored alongside him, and their work was not insignificant. In other words, the work that Paul did could not have taken place without the labor of those fellow laborers. And Paul often mentioned his appreciation for them. Though he was the one that seemed to get the most attention, he's even today the one that we put most of the emphasis on. Every one of these individuals was significant in the work of God. And I want to remind you this morning that ministry, the kind of ministry that God wants us to be involved in, is not a one-man show. There's a need for many people to serve in partnership so that God gets the glory. Could you imagine what it would be like this morning if I was trying to preach and also run the sound booth and run the video streaming and take up the offering and make sure that all the doors were getting opened in every place for every person that was coming in and taking care of the children down in the children's classes in the nursery and providing all of the special music and accompanying on the piano and leading the songs all at the same time. You get the idea. I mean, something as simple as having a service, a church service. One single service requires all kinds of different people playing a part, ministering together so that the Word of God can go forward. And that's a relatively simple thing. Think about something like going as a missionary. You say, well, that missionary is there. But you know, that's a joint effort as a church. We're getting ready to take a group to Thailand. One of the reasons we're going to Thailand is because that Those two ministries that are there are the ministries of our church. And it's important that we go and see, that we participate, that we meet the people that are being worked with, that we encourage uh, our missionaries who are there. It's important to understand that ministry requires partnership. In our culture, particularly uh, the culture of the United States, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on a single person. Maybe the pastor or the missionary or this person or that person who heads up a particular ministry. But let us be reminded that ministry requires partnership. And that means that there is a place for every person to be involved in the work of ministry. And we mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about somewhat about our vision for this year as a church. But I want to encourage you this morning that if you're a member of Lehigh Valley Baptist Church, you really ought to be asking God... Lord, where do you want me to minister? Where do you want me to be a part of the work that you are doing through Lehigh Valley Baptist Church? Don't miss the fact that God has called you to be a part of the team. We are working together in the work of the ministry. Ministry requires partnership. Fourth of all, we notice in this passage that ministry highlights the priority of preaching. Now, there's an extended passage here several verses which talk about an unusual occurrence that took place. Paul had now come to the city of Troas, which is back over on the coast of Asia Minor. He's returned from the other side over where Philippi is and has come back over here to Troas. And he was in the city of Troas, it says, for seven days, ministering to the church that was there in that city, instructing them, and teaching them from the word. And then the church came together on the first day of the week. I want to point out to you that this is a clear indication that early, early on, the day of worship 
had changed in people's mind from the Jewish Sabbath, from Saturday to the first day of the week. And the reason is because the first day of the week is the day that we remember and commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is a pattern that's carried forward in the, in, in the true churches that continue on from here. So if somebody tells you, hey, you're worshiping on the wrong day of the week, and that's, that means you're not right with God because you're not worshiping on Saturday, you can understand that there is a scriptural precedent for meeting on the first day of the week in commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they're meeting together, and Paul was invited to preach. And he preached. Uh, evidently, he came early in the day, and he preached a very long time. So if you are prone to think that sometimes pastor preaches a little too long, just be thankful that Paul is not your pastor, because it seems that he preached for hours. And it seems that the situation was that, of course, they were meeting in a house uh, because they didn't necessarily have a building, and this must have been somewhat of a large house, and, and Paul continued his speech until midnight. So he was preaching a really long time, and everybody was enjoying the preaching, and there's evidently this, uh, this thing, you know, this, this guy who's up in the upper chamber, way up in the top, and of course the lights would have been candles and lanterns and things like that, things that let off carbon monoxide. And there's a fella way up in the loft, maybe looking for a place where it's a little cooler, a cool breeze or something, and he's sitting up there, and the service is going long, and keeps going long, and it's getting longer and longer, and this poor fellow Eutychus must have been tired. I don't know whether he had been working or if he was, you know, been out in the fields or whatever, whatever the things are. And, and Eutychus, it says, fell into a deep sleep. Now, you know, as a pastor, I regularly see people fall asleep during the preaching. I know who you are. And uh, aren't you thankful I don't come and wake you up? But most people don't fall into a deep sleep. Most people don't sleep that deeply when they fall asleep in the services. Usually your wife is there to elbow you and wake you up a little bit. Oh, oh yeah, okay. And uh, it's always humorous when somebody who slept through the whole service says, great message, Pastor. <laughs> so I assume that you've developed the gift of listening in your sleep as well. All right, I'm just, I'm joking, all right? But it's evidently not a new thing that people fall asleep. By the way, I have, I have a pretty good sense of humor about this because I understand. I could sit down, and my kids are always laughing at me. I sit down in our living room at 8 o'clock at night and try to read, and then I fall asleep sitting on the couch, and they don't understand. And, and then they say, You're, why are you so tired? Why are you falling asleep? They, they don't understand what it's like to be old, I guess. So some of you understand. You sit down in here, your head starts to nod, you get tired. Well, this happened to Eutychus, only the problem was Eutychus was sitting in a precarious perch and he fell out of the, out of the loft. And the Bible says that they took him up dead. And what that means is that literally they picked him up and he was a corpse. So if you died... If somebody died whenever they fell asleep in church, it would probably help us stay awake more. But, you know, by any, by any 
anybody's imagination, this is a terrible thing. You don't want to see people dying in the services, especially because the preaching was so long. And so Paul came, and there was a miracle. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the miracle. I want to, I want to emphasize the preaching and come back to that in a minute. But Paul came, and I believe what happened here is that Paul raised him from the dead. By the way, in case you're wondering, they took him up dead. They were just inexperienced. They didn't know what they were talking about. Nobody was trained medical personnel. Remember that Luke was along. He was a medical doctor. And, and his, his statement was, they took him up dead. Eutychus had died. But God gave power to Paul, and Paul raised him from the dead. But what I want you to see is that when we're involved in ministry, ministry involves preaching. You see, what what was happening in the backdrop of this miracle is that Paul was preaching. He He was proclaiming the truth of God. Paul had something to say. In fact, he had a lot to say. And you could say, well, Paul shouldn't have preached so long, but Paul wasn't sure he would ever see these brothers again. And he had so much on his heart that he wanted to tell them about that he wanted to share with them because he thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a chance to say these things to these brothers. And so he was telling them all the stuff that was on his heart and he was just pouring himself out. Listen, if you want to know what it's like to preach a message and and what it takes, the energy that is required and the amount of thought and preparation, you should try it sometime. Not you ladies, all right? But uh, maybe, maybe we can, you know, you think about that. It's, It's a lot of work. And Paul is pouring himself out in in the ministry. Why? Because he has something important to say. And it's not his words. It's God's words. It's it's what God has for this church. And then I see that this church in Troas really prioritized preaching because they weren't going anywhere. For hours and hours, they were sitting, listening to what Paul had to say and learning from him and gleaning from the wisdom, from the word of God, because they appreciated these occasions. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should extend all of our services on Sunday till past midnight. And thankfully, we have opportunities to meet regularly and and to instruct. And I personally have found that you can really only gain as much from the preaching as your seat can endure. And so there there comes a point where your brain shuts off and you're not really learning much anymore. And so we try to time the services in such a way that you can get the maximum benefit, that you can enjoy some instruction before you get so tired that you're no longer able to listen. But understand that as a church, we always want to highlight the ministry of preaching. The instruction from the Word of God becomes that which is most important. There's a reason why the auditorium is designed with the pulpit front and center. Because this is where the teaching and preaching takes place. And we want to put the emphasis on the teaching and preaching of God's Word. We're thankful for the music ministry. We're thankful for all the other things that happen that are a part of ministering. But the preaching of God's Word needs to be put in a priority place because God speaks to His church through preaching. And God also communicates the gospel through the preaching of the Word of God. Just another pointer here. Paul stayed all night with these disciples I I was just caught by this, that after Eutychus was raised from the dead, Paul stayed with them all night long, and he talked with them even till break of day before he departed. What was he talking about? I 
assume he was talking about the same sorts of things that he was preaching about, that he was giving practical instruction in the things of the Lord, that he was sharing with them his heart, that he was challenging this church. And I like to think that this visit to the church at Troas had a lasting impact and effect on many of the people in this church because God values preaching and ministry always highlights the priority of preaching. If we're going to be involved in preaching or if we're going to be involved in ministry, it's going to involve some teaching and preaching of God's Word. But then notice this, the last thought in the last couple of verses. We see Paul taking a journey. So he leaves from, from Troas, verse 13, and we have all of these different places where he goes. And part of the company goes in a ship and they sail. Paul follows along, along the coast on foot. It's about 20 miles. And so he makes his way on foot, and then he gets back on the ship, and they sail from this place to that place to the other place. If you have a a Bible map or an atlas in in the back of your Bible, you can find many of these places. And what you'll notice is that Paul is traveling across the northern part of the coast of Asia Minor, and he's coming down. Remember, Ephesus is kind of like right in the center of the, the west coast of Asia Minor. He's headed down to that city of Ephesus, and then he's going to go from Ephesus down into uh, towards Jerusalem, and that's going to carry us forward in, in the rest of the book of Acts. But we notice that, fifth of all, ministry requires that we make some plans. So the Apostle Paul had in his mind where he wanted to go. I told you he was collecting an offering, He's intending to take this offering to the city of Jerusalem to deliver it to the believers who are there to be a blessing to them from the other churches that have been established. He's traveling with his company. Along the way, he's stopping in different places. He's encouraging churches. He's he's continuing the work of the ministry. But what you can see is that this sort of ministry, this sort of travel takes some planning. And You know, sometimes we think that being filled with the Spirit means that we should never plan. But that's not the sense that is here. We should make plans in the filling of the Spirit and then submit those plans to the Lord. And sometimes God will disrupt our plans. Sometimes God will take us a different direction than what we had thought He was going to take us. We see this often in in Paul's ministry. But the Bible does not forbid us from making plans. And actually, what we need to do as a church is we need to make some plans. We need to have some intentions. We need to say, okay, we intend to do these things. We mentioned, you know, we've got a group that's getting ready to go to Thailand in a few days and and be with the Halls and the Williams. Well, a trip like that doesn't just happen by accident. You don't just say one day, hey, let's go to to Thailand. Anybody want to go? Listen, we'll meet you there. No, it doesn't work that way. There's a lot of details that have to be worked out. A lot, of, a lot of things that you have to say, okay, well, what are we eating? Where are we staying? How are we traveling? How are we going to get from the airport? How are we carrying our luggage? What are the things we need to bring? What are we going to do when we get there? How are we getting back? All of these sorts of things. Plans have to be made. But never forget that God is the great disruptor of plans. And sometimes God will redirect our plans. He'll send us a different direction. But notice that Paul's intention is revealed in this passage in verse number 16. Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. So he had in his mind, I want to be in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. Of course, that's one of the greatest 
and most significant feasts of the Jewish people. And Paul is intending to be in the city for that feast day, not only to deliver the offering to the church at Jerusalem, but evidently also he has some intentions of being in the temple and fulfilling some vows that he has made to God. He's hoping that this will give him an open door of opportunity to preach to the Jewish people again. So we see that Paul has some plans. And I want to remind you that as a church, we tend to make some plans. We tend to think about, okay, how can we go about the work that God has called us to do? We ask ourselves questions like, how are we going to be witnesses to every creature? How are we going to take the gospel to the Lehigh Valley? How are we going to see people called to the ministry and trained and sent out? How are we going to see more people come to faith in Christ? How are we going to publish the gospel abroad, not just here in the valley, but all over the world? How are we going to do these things? We have to make plans in order to do the work of the ministry. And it's interesting how then God takes our plans and oftentimes he amplifies our efforts. He takes the things that we do and he redirects them. For instance, I don't think Paul imagined when he determined this in verse 16, I don't think Paul imagined that he was going to be arrested in Jerusalem. I don't think he at first realized, now later God would reveal this to him, but I don't think he realized how great the persecution would be that he would encounter in the city of Jerusalem and what this would do to the trajectory of his ministry from this point forward. But understand that at this point, Paul is making plans. He believes these plans to be in the will of God. He's taking his team with him, and he is intending to do something for the glory of God. There is nothing that is accomplished for the glory of God by sitting back with crossed arms, twiddling our thumbs, hoping that God will do something in the absence of our effort. God has called us to be involved in a work, and a work it is. We must make plans, and then we must execute those plans in the power of God if we are going to be involved in ministry. Now, what we find is that Paul, in these 16 verses, was involved in an effective ministry. And this is a good model for us as a church. I ask you to consider this morning, in your own part, are you experiencing fellowship working together with others in the calling of God? Are, are you both receiving and giving exhortation? There's a give and a take in this exhortation whereby we encourage and exhort one another in the work of God. Are, are you a part of the team? Are you part of being involved in taking the gospel to the world that is around us? Are you really giving priority to the preaching of the Word of God, uh, to receiving that preaching, and when God gives you opportunity to preaching to others, preaching the gospel and sharing with others the truth of God, are you a part of making some plans and intending to be used in the work of God, intending to be a part of the ministry that God has called us to? 